This is To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, a Learn and Sing production. Paul McDermott, and this is a podcast about great Irish albums. It's named after a My Bloody Valentine song. If you go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast, you'll find links to episode notes and lots of further information on all the albums we've covered so far. If you're new to the podcast, there's 30 previous episodes to go back and discover. That's 30 episodes that feature a deep dive into 36 different Irish albums. Albums by That Petrol Emotion, The Fatima Mansions, Whipping Boy, The Stars of Heaven, A House, Therapy and many, many more. And I'd ask that if you've enjoyed any episode to date, then please maybe consider subscribing, liking and sharing. Now this is episode 31 and it focuses on Twist, the debut album by The Fat Lady Sings. The band was formed by Nick Kelly in Dublin in March 1986. During the mid-80s, as a men congregated in Dublin looking for the next U2, it seemed to me that any half-decent band in Dublin was in with a chance of securing an international record deal. But as Nick will explain in this episode, he felt that he had no choice really but to up sticks and move to London. In London, The Fat Lady Sings would go on to self-release four highly regarded singles. With Terry Hooley's permission, they reactivated his Good Vibrations label to release their debut single, Fear and Favour. It was a clever move. Indeed, in January 1987, Music Week wrote... Legendary Belfast label Good Vibrations returns with its first single in nearly four years, launching yet another highly promising new Irish band. Its passionate vocal and insistent beat should ensure attention despite the ungainly name. Fifteen months later, in March 1988, Be Still, the band's second single, was described by Danny Kelly in The Enemy as ambitiously epic and enigmatic. Though he too did have a pop at the band's name, writing that the single amply compensates for their obvious deficiencies in the name-picking department. Arclight followed in 1989, a gorgeous tune. The melody maker wrote that it combines a sense of craft with tuneful naivety. There's an internal conflict between a melancholy lyric and a lush, agile musical backing. Constant touring followed and the band picked up such a huge live following that they were able to sell out Dublin's National Stadium and London's Town and Country Club. The fact that a band who had yet to release an album could sell out one of London's biggest venues was not lost on the music industry. David Stops, the band's manager, told Music Week, I don't know if there's another band around in this position. The Fat Lady Sings signed to East West Records and Twist was released in 1991. Arclight was reissued and this time around it was awarded Single of the Week in Sounds magazine who wrote technically a re-release but there should always be space guaranteed for a song of the calibre of Arclight, one of the most achingly beautiful songs of recent years. 
Arclight reached number seven in the Irish singles chart, one of five singles, the others being Drowning Maudland, Man Scared, Deborah and the title track Twist, that all went top 20 in Ireland. The enemy called Twist a trembling monster of a pop record and declared the Fat Lady Sings Ireland's finest band. They released a second album, Johnson, in 1993. Drunken Logic from that album gave the band their biggest UK chart placing, reaching number 56 in July of that year. They broke up in early 1994. Nick went on to release a number of highly regarded solo albums and he's also released a couple of albums under the Alien Envoy moniker. In recent years, he's been recording and playing with his old friend Sean Miller as Dogs. For over 20 years now, Nick has been working in film. He's directed short films, music videos, adverts, and in 2017, his debut feature film, The Drummer and the Keeper, won the Best Irish First Feature at the Galway Film Fla. He's currently finishing The Song Cycle, a documentary about cycling from Ireland to Glastonbury, playing gigs with Sean Miller en route. The film aims to start a conversation about more sustainable ways of touring live music. And if all that wasn't enough, the Fat Lady Sings have just announced that they'll be playing a gig in Whelan's on the 15th of November. I've been a fan of the Fat Lady Sings since I heard Fanning play Arclight on his radio show late one night in 1989. It remains without doubt one of my favourite Irish singles of all time. It's a thrill to be able to say, so here we go, to Here Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, Episode 31, Twist by the Fat Lady Sings. It's my great pleasure to welcome Nick Kelly. Nick, you're very welcome. Literally a year ago yesterday, I had tweeted a picture of the Fat Lady Sings from my own record collection and I realised I had the fall to the left of the Fat Lady Sings and the Fatima Mansions to the right and I tweeted it and you responded saying that there are other bands in your record collection. I have your tweet here, Nick. You were saying that in your CD collection there are records by The Farm, The Fall, Fat Larry's Band, Falco, the Fat White Family yeah, Band, yeah. and in there as well. <laughs> and you were saying that obviously not all of those would be like musically connected, but you think somehow... They're my uh, family, yeah. yeah. My, my, they're my, my record store family. Which is just lovely, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I was saying I like the idea that um, the Fat ladies Sings keep Marky Smith and Carl Coughlin away from each other. I know. In, in my record collection. Well, I, and you know, it's I knew, I knew Carl a bit, you know, quite sort of passingly well, because he would have been in London and I would have been a huge fan actually of Micro Disney. And then I was a big fan of the Fatima Mansions as well. Uh, we would have gone to see them play a lot. And then I did see... I never met Marky e. Smith, but I did see the fall playing with Brick Smith being pulled in on a giant hamburger. Uh, uh, the Michael Clark Ballet, I Am Curious Orange. Did you see I went, that? I saw it in Sadler's Well. I'm not a great ballet 
fan or indeed an opera fan but I went to see that Lee Bowery was, and was that's right that. And uh, but I remember bricks coming in uh, being pulled playing guitar on the top of a giant hamburger it was um, because Nick amongst fall fans that's the big one that was supposed to have been filmed but no one has ever seen oh, really? the film of it so amongst the fall uh, Fallerati it's like whatever happened to the film of Curious Orange I'm not much use for these things because my memory so uh, gets so jumbled up. That image was fantastically powerful and exciting, I must say. Uh, what I remember was being very entertained for the evening. And I often sit in theatres and not feel very entertained. Yeah. So I can say that it yeah. was, yeah. Uh, I think the fall definitely made ballet more palatable for me. Nick, the fat lady sings. When I went back getting ready for this, I didn't realise year first single had been brought out on Good Vibrations. Hmm. And um, I was quite surprised by that, actually. So can you tell me how that came about? Well, it's a surprising story. So I uh, really, I started The Fat Lady Sings. I'd done a gig, a solo gig in 1985 as The Fat Lady Sings just by myself. I didn't really feel like I was a, like I was just opening up for friends of mine in the Baggett Inn. But I didn't really feel like I was a rock and roll kind of guy at all. And then I'd gone off to New York and I suddenly thought I actually could do this thing. I think going to a foreign city was um, incredibly helpful for me. And then I moved back, started the band in March 86, qualified as a solicitor and gave up the same day in May 86, and then made everybody else give up their jobs and moved to London in June 86. So I thought, that's what I want to do. And I can't do it where in a city where everybody knows me. So whatever my powers of persuasion, I managed to get them all to do that. We did come back to Dublin that Christmas and we went into a studio and we we recorded Fear and Favour. I sort of, though, my, I don't think musically people particularly associate me with punk or nor do I really associate myself with punk rock as a musical form. But it was incredibly empowering for me and for people of my age, like because it was like you didn't have to be a kind of like a cool kind of prog rock you know, masters in music theory guy. You could just play three chords. Yeah. So the idea of doing demos was a thing I hated. So I wanted to make a single. And so we had these two songs we had recorded, Fear and Favour, and we had a B-side. And somebody we knew in London knew Terry Hooley. Terry was, at this point, I think, on one of his many bankruptcies. You know, the Good Vibrations as a business was not a going concern. Yeah. But he did send me in the post... He said, you can put it out in Good Vibrations if you want to. And he sent me the Letra Setted logo, which we put on the artworks. We paid for the single ourselves. We put it out ourselves. We just put my Good Vibrations on it. And in fairness, the fact that Terry had sort of given it his imprimatur, people did play it. But I mean, um, I didn't meet Terry for two years until that way after that. And, you know, to all intents and purposes, he just let us use the name. It was helpful. I've actually watched the film Good Vibrations twice, sitting beside Terry in the cinema, and both times he's in floods of tears. And I find I'm kind of thrilled for him that somebody so beautifully captured his personality as Richard Dormer did in that film, because um, Terry is kind of a crazy person, but he is a, a person of incredible integrity and sort of energy and I think Richard Dormer captured and that film captured the fact that in those times in Belfast, being a crazy person wasn't just excusable. 
it was actually positively admirable. Like he was literally saying, I'm not going to pay any attention to the politics of this and everything. I just want to make music and I want to support music and I want to support young bands making music. And um, anyway, I think it's kind of fantastic to have lived such a strange, sinuous life and to have a situation where you see one of the great actors, I think, of this era playing him so brilliantly on the screen. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned there, Nick, qualifying with your law degree and then deciding, you know, you wanted to pursue music. Now, I know, like you mentioned, Terry Hooley and, and, and politics there a second ago. Like, I know, like, your father was a politician. I think he was a minister in one of Garth Fitzgerald's cabinets in the early That's 80s. That's right, yeah. How did your dad react? How, you know, like, what was the conversation when you had passed your finals but didn't want to pursue law? Well, there was no conversation. I mean, my father, one of the funny things about growing up in a polit- political house is it goes one of two ways, in my experience, because I know lots of other children of politicians. Uh, and um, you either go into the family business where it's like it's you know everything is towards the goal of getting your, your father and elected, the and then and then you keep the seat while, yeah. or you kind of run a mile from it. And in fairness to my late father, he literally didn't even assume we would vote for him. Like my mother used to say on polling days, "Oh well, I hope you'll remember your father." He was very intellectually libertarian. I mean, he did. Uh, he was very very busy. And he was very distracted all the time by politics, which I really appreciated because he, he didn't actually notice that I I'd qualified as a solicitor. I gave up the same day. And about three months later, I hear in family lore, um, my father came down to breakfast one morning and said to my mother, I said, Delphine, is it true that Nicholas has given up the study of law? And my mother said, I think he has, yeah. He said, has he moved to London with that bloody banjo of his? And she said, you know, I think he has. And so he moodily went back to his boiled egg on toast. I think he found all of his children deeply mysterious. A very sad thing in his life, I think, was that he retired from politics at the age of 58. That Christmas afterwards, there were five Christmas presents under our Christmas tree in his handwriting, the labels. I'd never seen my father in a shop in my whole life. And, you know, I'd lived away from home at that point for, for quite a while. And so it was just, it was such a, an image to me that he finally had time to yeah. do that. And then the next Christmas, he there was more presents and, and there were much better presents the second year. And then the January, he dropped dead at 59. So I always think it's inoculated me against politics, actually, because I think you, uh, I have a sort of very unfashionably, I sort of admire almost everybody, almost everybody who stands for office and who goes into politics, because in my experience, again, almost all of them and lots of them, by the way, I totally disagree with the the, the, ideologies. the ideologies and the strategies. But but almost all of them, I think, are motivated to to to, to make things better. But it's a really awful sacrifice that you make. A family to, sacrifice. Well, I think. A personal sacrifice, you know, I mean, our family, you know, my mother was absolutely the centre of our family and there was five of us and I was the oldest of five. And I mean, all of the family business sort of was transacted really through her. And then she was like an ambassador to my father. She would go and get the housekeeping check and he would, you know, but I mean, 
you were very much it just takes up so much time you know um but i think you know i mean i have children myself you know i have two sons and i mean one thing i can say absolutely truthfully is they've infinitely less respect for me than I have for my father yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand I think I I kind of know them the minutiae of their day-to-day -day existence much much better probably than my father yeah. knew ours yeah. and I kind of think our generation in fact this I don't think this is just about you know political fathers I think largely fathers of my father's generation uh, you know were, were much more absent from yeah. them I mean, they never went to their yeah, children's yeah. births or anything like that and I think we're the generation that has traded uh, respect for intimacy. And I think it's a good deal. I'm surprised, Nick, to hear that you're the eldest. If you'd said to me, I'm the youngest sibling and I decided to be in the rock and roll band, I'd understand it a lot more. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of, I think um, it's very, well, I think being an oldest child is a funny old thing I mean every every childhood is completely different including every childhood in the same family yeah. so I mean myself and my immediate junior brother we never were on a foreign holiday we never were on a plane I wasn't yeah. on a plane until I was 19 but like all my younger siblings they were always going off to uh, Italy for holidays in France on planes all the time so that was just because the family fortunes I guess had sort of improved and or whatever our airfares maybe had become cheaper Ryanair and, uh, was invented yeah but I, I think I'm, I think the instinct to define yourself, uh, especially as an oldest child, somewhat separately to your parents and maybe to your, to your father if you're a boy, I think is quite a strong one. And I think because my father was such a brilliant man, I mean, he was you know, academically brilliant and you know, intellectually brilliant and he was sort of on the TV all the time and in the news all the time for being sort of a very clever man. I sort of, I think it was not by accident that I sort of chose things. I was like a shade endurer, you know, like I chose, I, I started playing, he was very unsporting, like he thought sports were mad. And so he, like he couldn't understand why anybody would do sports at all. And um, so I became really good at tennis when I was young. And I, I wouldn't come. There was no history of sports in our family. but And I wasn't, I don't think I was particularly talented as a sports person. But I would hit a ball up against a wall for hours on end. And I ended up being like number two in Ireland under when I was under 16. But I think it was a way of being good at something that I could, wouldn't have to try and compete with somebody yeah. who got second in the country in history and fifth in the country in Irish and had written, you know, all those kinds of things. And similarly, I think music. I mean, my father... I have a piano in our house, which my father owned. And he apparently could play piano. He had done eight grades. And I was thrown out of three piano classes when I was seven. Like I was completely, I think a great disappointment to him was none of his children became a concert orchestra conductor. But I never heard him play the piano. I never heard him play music. He whistled Johann Sebastian Bach through the house. I mean, the funny thing was he was a of an, a generation where he theoretically could have been a Led Zeppelin fan or a Beatles fan. But I mean, honestly, I'm absolutely certain he wouldn't even have known who or what Led Zeppelin was, yeah, yeah. you know. So, so he was very musical, but it wasn't popular culture generally. He was very, he was very old fashioned about technology even. Like he didn't, we didn't really have stereos or we rented a TV for the moon landing. I remember that was the thing when I was about seven, you know, like, so, I think going into rock and roll, 
And I'm always struck by, you know, you, it's what you run towards and what you run away from. And like, yeah. I think finding a thing that you, you know, you can define yourself separately and yeah. it's a quite, a, well, I think it was probably quite a strong instinct, the maybe for lots of oldest kids. Yeah. So the second single, a second version of the band, a couple of new members of the band yeah. for that second well, we, single. With the thing, we totally, still, think, yeah, we totally grew up in public. You see, I kind of think I must have been a total psycho. I came back from New York in a December and I sort of made three people start a van with me in the March. And then I made them all give up their jobs and I made them all to move to London. And then like all the things people did in Dublin, like in rehearsal studios for years and years and, you know, like and, and you know, being in bands and then falling apart. I'd, I'd been in one sort of band kind of in college where we played four gigs in three years. And I think we had like three names. We had two other lead singers. And I didn't really feel like I was that lead singer at all. But it was more a, a band that you would talk about over coffee rather than yeah. a band that would actually play. I suddenly felt I was in such a hurry, you know, to get going. So the people that the original two of the four members, you know, within kind of within a year had gone, you know, just because they, yeah, yeah. you know, they would tried it for a while. It wasn't really right. You know, and and then we had a, a different a couple of different people in at different times, you know, but uh, but the the lineup. The sort of first, the lineup that was on Twist, kind of, we probably went, uh, myself and Robert, the drummer, were the sort yeah. of constant. And then there was a bit of, I knew even like a friend of my girlfriend's who was a graphic designer, was Australian, played guitar with us for a while. But he said, listen, I've got a job. I'm I'm like, you know, and we were all signing on. And yeah, like, yeah. So, so um, yeah, to, but all those things that bands do in rehearsal studios and in an obscurity, because we'd had a single, which we'd put out after like literally nine months and then the NME had written really nice reviews and we got like people so we were sort of growing up in public a bit and I don't think we really knew how to play live either I mean that was the other thing was that we were quite ramshackle uh, and people would be coming to see us because they really liked this single and the studio thing for some reason immediately made sense to me but yeah. whereas the live thing you know, you need you need to put in the flying hours. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it took us a while, and we you know, went through a few different members, and we went through a few different sort of iterations. And then you started your own little indie label to release the next few singles. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing was, and, and you know, I'm really struck at the moment by how how I think music and film are are almost exactly the same. Um, muscle actually or skill but the one big difference is it's so expensive to make movies whereas music you why are you waiting for permission to make music and I feel I've always felt that I felt it before the Fat Lady Sings during the Fat Lady Sings and then before it got signed and then subsequently I felt it all afterwards so we always I didn't want to do demos I wanted to put music into the world and that worked honestly very very well for us you know in the sense that we didn't really have much of anything going on. Like we weren't, you know, really, we, we got good life. We got, I think we got really good life actually, but, but it took us a while, yeah. but we had these songs and it was very exciting for me personally. First of all, the recording thing and hearing this thing suddenly stand up. And especially when you start to bring other people in and you got good together, yeah. that was so exciting. And then the idea that that, then you would wait, you know, like I didn't want to wait for somebody to give me permission to put that into the world. So we did have a label. And in fairness, we had management who were incredibly 
supportive of and facilitating of us doing that. They they came in and a guy called David Stops who managed Howard Jones and Howard who uh, a very different musical thing to us but he had built up a huge fan base through really quite pop means like newsletters and stuff yeah and we already were doing mailing lists but David really supercharged that he said let's do it let's do a magazine and we started putting out magazines to our fans I signed 9,000 Christmas cards one year before we were signed to a major label you know so we, we and we didn't feel like we were ever a cool thing like we were sort of in retrospect, the Fat Lady Sings was kind of completely the wrong thing at the wrong time because we were sort of, we fell slap bang in the middle of that thing of Seattle and Manchester. Yeah. And we weren't either of those things. Yeah. But what we did have was songs and we and and we felt there was an audience for that. Uh, and there were some bands um, around who were doing that. But the way we could get a hearing for ourselves was to put things out independently and like record companies are always coming to see us and they always kind of liked it, but they weren't sure. Yeah. And then building up a fan base. So in the end, that's kind of what we did. We we put records out ourselves. Everybody who came to see us, if we didn't get their name, name and address and early on, it was somewhere to stay. Like when we went on tour, like we had a merchandising stall, not mainly to get a bed for the night. Because <laughs> like, if somebody came up and they asked about our T-shirts or, and, we, and they floor. got it. Yeah, we totally did that. Yeah. So So it was part of it was quite a DIY ethic, actually. Yeah. The first time I'd have heard of the band, Nick would have been, I think it's the third single, isn't it? The first version of Arclight? Yeah, which is kind of the only version of Arclight, really. It was the, it was, I think there's one tiny edit in the second version. Yeah. I think we cut out two bars in the intro. Arclight, we recorded in Howard Jones's home studio in 1989. And we had recorded an A side and a B side for our third single, which is going to Behind Your Back was the A side. And we had a song called Heavy Duty, which was going to be the B side. And because we were, we were it's the first time we were ever in a properly posh studio uh, in Harrod's own house, which was very generous of him. And we were so rehearsed because we were so, this opportunity, we had three days to record these two songs. And after two and a half days, we had, recorded and kind of mixed them and I had this thing that we were messing around with in the rehearsal which is Arclight and we just had a half day left over and we just knocked it down and that's the recording that's always been we never re-recorded we took, there was some attempt to re-record it or radically remix it afterwards but it never really worked so that was the tune like and we didn't think it was a single at all at the time isn't that funny? So like, was it the manager convinced you or was it someone else? Well, it kind of grew on us okay. gradually. And in fact, the story of Arclight is growing on people very gradually because we put it out ourselves and I think it got to 19 in the charts for a week and then dropped right out. It wasn't a hit anywhere. It was never a hit, even when it was re-released. And then after, weirdly, after a few months, we started hearing reports of it being played. It, it sort of grew on people. And I, I've always thought bitterly sometimes that that's kind of a talent that I have, which I, I sort of wish I had other talents. There's people who are brilliant at immediacy. And I'm not sure I am as brilliant at immediacy as, as those people. But like, I, you know, I love the Blue Nile. And like the Blue Nile had a quality where the fifth time you heard the album, you loved it better than the first and the tenth time better than the fifth. Yeah, yeah. And I think the Fat Lady Sings 
possibly have that quality. And Arclight certainly, yeah. it grew on people. Yeah. The melody maker said of it at the time, Arclight combines a sense of craft with tuneful naivety. There's an internal conflict between a melancholy lyric and a lush, agile musical backing. That's quite nice, actually. That's the melody maker. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> and the enemy said of it on release, they said a trembling monster of a pop group whose third single Arclight is charming its way onto the airwaves everywhere. So that's quite nice from the uh, from the Music Weeklies over in the UK at the time. Well, I first heard it on um, Fanning. I'd have been in secondary school, Nick, listening to Fanning when I was supposed to be studying. And then I can remember hearing, it was probably the following year, Nick, it was probably just, I think it was between the first release of it and its reissue. I can remember hearing talk that you'd sold out the National Stadium in Dublin and you'd sold out the town and country. Now, I know that now is, that's the Forum, Kentish yeah. Town. I can just remember, it was like, hang on, they, they don't even have an album out. How can they be selling out the National Stadium? Well, I think the thing of... A thing I've realised in my life is you can, uh, most bands, certainly in that era, uh, went for a thing about being cool. Yeah. So they were cool and you looked up to them and they were aspirational for all sorts of reasons to do with uh, yeah, attitude and, the, you know, iconography and everything. Uh, but there was a moment, very early on I realised I'm not going to be like that. Uh, not, not because I didn't want to be like that, but I just don't think I could pull that off. Yeah. But I've really realised that there's a sort of a choice between being cool and being warm. And I think the Fat Lady Sings were warm. Okay. And we always really reached out to our fans. And we reached over the heads in a way of, that we had nice things written about us, but in a funny kind of a way, I think our relationship with the audience sort of reached over the heads of the of the press and the media and the arbiters of coolness. So the record companies who are very attuned to the arbiters of coolness, they quite liked the tunes and they quite liked the songs and everything, but they weren't really sure about, we didn't really seem like we, like I, I hated videos and like I, you know, like an awful, all of that stuff is quite ironic now, given that yeah, I yeah. make my living making them. But, but I do actually still to this day think the video is a weird piece of filmic form. So I think they were signing people who are really good at all that stuff. But what we were really good at was getting lots and lots of people to kind of fall in love with us. Yeah. And there became an absurd situation where at that gig in the town and country club, we had some labels, major labels, who, you know, we were trying to get signed and get a record deal and get to make an album. They were actually ringing us up and offering us money for their bands they had signed to open for us to buy on to, to buy support. on yes that's just crazy, so man. so eventually that's crazy well that was that happened and i think there, i don't know if there is a lot i don't know if there is a lesson there isn't a lesson exactly but i it's the only thing i think i tend to and even with other people i'm very uninterested in people's image i'm i'm really interested in tunes and in I'm interested in lyrics as well, but I'm interested in, and you know, and I, I don't care. Like, 
I can like I when I, people talk about Rick Astley and everything like that, I'm not particularly Rick Astley fan, but I totally get it. Like there's there's three bars of spirits having flown yeah, by the yeah. Bee Gees that transport me. Like yeah, yeah. M- most of the things, okay, but and I think I've always had that. Like I I I don't really care. I don't really care about who made it, and I can even like I like I can hate almost everything by a band. And they can still get me on a tune, like one tune, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I kind of, I'm, I think I'm, that's a thing that I think we've, I think we always had that. Like we cared about, that's what we cared about. And I think the people came to see us, we, we delivered that and we delivered it in a very open hearted yeah. way. And I think that was very attractive to lots of people, actually. I'm from Cork. So when I was a teenager, it seemed to me looking at Dublin that like every band and his dog could get a record deal in Dublin. So why did you feel the need to get out of Dublin and go to London I, I, to like to try and do it? Well, I definitely couldn't have been in a band if I'd stayed in Dublin. Okay. Like there's absolutely no, I mean, <laughs> I do I do think one of the problems of a place like Dublin in that time was that the kinds of people who ended up in bands were the kinds of people who looked like they should be in bands. And I can actually, without being unkind, probably, and I won't, but there's, I could yeah, think yeah. of a bunch of bands yeah. like that where, honestly, I went, I thought, okay, these tunes are bad tunes or completely, completely derivative tunes. These lyrics are thoughtless, useless lyrics, but they look like they're in a band, they're in a band. Yeah. I definitely didn't feel like I was that person. Secondly, my father was a politician. I grew up in Donnybrook. I was a qualified solicitor. I feel like three strikes against any level of coolness. So going somewhere... the. I'd only started being in a band because I went to a place where nobody knew me and I started singing in bars in New York and people were nice to me about my singing. Now, nobody had ever been nice to me about my singing in Dublin. So though I love Dublin and I live in Dublin and I'm, it's my home, one of the interesting things about the connectiveness of Irish life is it's a beautiful thing, actually, uh, and uh, kind of transcendently beautiful. Like, it's about if you lose somebody, you're strangers, you're on their radar, you're in their Headspace. nexus, yeah, yeah. you're in their matrix. But the problem is, if you decide to be a thing that's not the thing that they have in their head that you should be, so you're a Fine Gael minister's son from Aylesbury Road, uh, who is qualified solicitor with McCamps Gerald, and you decide you want to be in a rock band, that is very disturbing to the Matrix. <laughs> the Matrix does not want that. And I think, like I, most people I knew in bands, by the way, of that era are from middle class backgrounds, but just not as uh, obvious ones. So I just thought, OK, I, can, I literally can't do it here. And it's the censor in the head as well, as Vaclav Havel would have said yeah, it, yeah. that, you know, it, you get you get in your own way because you, even if other people don't think that way, you're thinking, actually, like, it's like you're thinking they're watching me dance. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, you know, going to London, I didn't feel my competition was a house or something happens or, you know, or whatever. I felt it was George Michael. I literally felt that was yeah. at least, it was much, much harder to get by and to survive and... I remember uh, famously a guy I knew, uh, Dermot McAvoy, came. He, he's actually a researcher in the late, late, but he, he came and roadied for us in a tour we did at the back of a van in Germany before we were signed. We did lots of uh, support tours and we were literally sleeping on floors and, and he came back from that tour and he said, I came back and I was told about 20 Dublin vans to give up. 
Because I said, like the 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 amount of energy and kind of you know the hard yards we put in yeah. to build up, but it was very exciting because when you did get some notice, it was from the enemy. Yeah, it was you know you suddenly were getting people from big record labels coming down, so. I don't think it could have work, worked for me personally. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't know whether it would be better or worse, but I don't, it wouldn't have worked. So when the deal finally came in, it was East West Records gave you a deal and uh, you recorded some extra songs then. I think the first album, quite a patchy process, actually, though the record itself, I think, stands up really well. But the we had some songs, but we went in with the producer with the intention of, recording a whole new thing from scratch. And we'd never really worked with producers, but so we'd worked a little bit with, sort of with the producer, but like we'd sort of produced quite a lot of stuff ourselves or, you know, engineers who did, a, you know, sort of producing with an engineer, but yeah. suddenly we had like a big name producer. It was Paul Hardiman. Well, Paul Hardiman. And so, Mike Rorty. So Mike, too, wasn't it? Well, Mike had produced with us Arclight because he was like wasn't he, he was Howard he was Jones Howard Jones's it was engineer. a nice engineer yeah yeah brilliant and we had got a very good relationship with Mike and it was very understated and then Paul who's like a brilliant he's like done Lloyd Cole and the, the yeah. like all these people who were you know, like we were so excited but it, it, I think one of the things that happened was that the rigor of recording you know suddenly in a residential studio for like six weeks or whatever it was. You know, for start, I know Robert had an incredibly torrid time, the, the drummer, because, you know, suddenly you're putting down the things which are, you know, a huge amount of focus on the drums back in those days in particular, because we did, it was just before the era of s- sequencing and yeah. sampling and stuff. So you really, the drum track, yeah. incredible levels of pressure and focus on that. And wasn't it that a lot of producers wanted a drummer to use a click track, which is something that a lot of drummers don't want to do? All of that was going on. And that was a big pressure. And the, the, basically the first sessions, and then there was, a, you know, there was a lot of, there was that thing of like the record company have, a you know, all, everybody with the best will in the world, by the way. So like not, nothing, everybody wants the this best. record to be the best, including us. Well. Yeah, of course. Um, but there was, in terms of, how people felt about the recordings there there's like big divergences between the record company hearing those tr- recordings coming out and our management and you know there's all that stuff going on so we sort of we recorded a bunch of stuff and we kept some of the stuff but then we we sort of went back and revisited other bits and then re-recorded bits and be still we ended up using we recorded the a, a b-side version of be still ourselves and we ended up putting that on the album so it was anyway it was very patchwork quilt i suppose in another way all first albums are of their nature kind even if you if they're all produced by one person because it's like it's everything you've ever done in your life up to this moment and then your second album it's like everything that's happened in the year and four months since since you put the first album out so the process was quite i think it was quite hard on us all actually where was the studio? The then? studio was in, in Farnham and Surrey. I, don't, I didn't drive at the time. So it was a residential, a sort of slightly idyllic residential studio with a swimming pool. But you were sort of trapped there. So I do remember one grim morning waking up and like feeling so embattled that I sat down. I think we were, the drums were like in drum tracks or something. I remember sitting down and getting my breakfast and watching every episode of Blackadder. The four... <laughs> 
seasons and the Christmas special in one sitting without talking to anybody. I just like I was I was in my sort of hibernation bear mode. But, you know, I think it's it's like, again, like it's funny, even with filmmaking, like you think you're so far along and then you do a new thing and it's like you're literally a beginner again. And when you go in to make an album on a major label, it's, you know, we were quite good in the studio, I think, compared to a lot of bands. Uh, but it was still like a completely different experience, yeah. actually. There were a few more singles lifted off the album. Deborah, Manscared had come up before the album, hadn't it? I yeah, think? I mean, Manscared did very well in America, actually. Uh, that Manscared was uh, number 28 in the American alternative charts before. We, so that was quite a big um, thing for us. Twist was a single, uh, right, which was yeah. the title track. And Deborah, which always was a huge live favourite and and we'd put Johnny Maudland out as a single, as a single as independently that's right yeah. and that, that actually still was the highest chart position we ever got in Ireland I think that was six or five in the Irish charts again it's almost like a greatest hits of your yeah. your things to date you know The Enemy called it it's been a long time coming but at last it's here a bright shiny jewel of a debut is too the Fat Lady Sings have shown that they have it in them to create masterful songs with dignity and style I know it's hard to hear these things to you oh not so right I'm delighted to hear them <laughs> The Melody Maker 90% of the songs on Twist are so gentle and moving so full of ambience they have the sedative effect of a flotation tank. The combination of Nick Kelly's unrequited love songs and Tim Bradshaw's multi-instrumentalism makes the Fat Lady Sings debut LP a mouth-watering treat. Like fellow Irishmen into paradise, they can sit painful words on top of beautiful music without resorting to U2-style histrionics. That's right. Again, that's I can't nice, remember that. That's a nice well. paragraph, isn't it? It is indeed. Yeah, yeah. So the reissued or re-released, I don't know, what, what would you call it? Arclight was put out again yeah, yeah. by the like by the label. Yeah. And that got single of the week in um, either, I think it's the enemy, single of the week. Buy this and drink deep from a bottomless glass of emotion. <laughs> <laughs> that's lovely. God, you're digging up some quotes. I, I, I must have... Known, I suppose, right? I can't remember. I suppose at the time, like someone surely, like the management would have shown you those. Lots of touring then, Nick, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was, we toured a great, like we, we got good live, like, and we, we got to tour. I mean, it's kind of an amazing thing to get to do because you get to go to places, places you get to, I mean, we we sort of, I'm going to say that uh, Northern European countries like it's Scandinavia and Germany and like, you know, the Netherlands, yeah. a place like that, we went down pretty well in. Whereas France and Spain and Italy, it's, it's kind of, um, it's a great tragedy to me because I spent a lot of my time in Italy and I can actually speak, uh, well, I mean, not, people laugh at me speaking French, but I can make myself understood in French, but like literally you could never get arrested in France at all. <laughs> whatever way we, whatever our aesthetic is and their aesthetic, it's just, it never happened. But the, but we got, yeah, good reactions in different it's, European it's, countries. You got to play like Roskilde, and yeah. you got to, you know, you get to be. I remember being got to play the big day out in Glasgow to like sixty thousand people in Georgia Square, yeah. you know, and all that stuff. Like we were the support act yeah. that sometimes blew the main act off the stage, or certainly we got standing ovations sometimes as a support act. So we were really good at that, and yeah. 
in fairness, some a lot of that comes down to the generosity of the the main act yeah. because they let that happen or they don't. Yeah. Uh, but Hot House Flowers, we opened for quite a bit. They their audiences loved us, and you know they and they would bring us on in their encores and everything. We toured with a band called Diesel Park West quite a yeah. bit, and again we, we we got loads of new fans from that and different other bands. But uh, the Psychedelic Furs, who I loved, now you wouldn't so Jesus and Mary Chain I don't think they've got tunes Psychedelic Furs do have tunes so I'm I'm like Husker do have tunes yeah. like I'm I'm kind of like that like I you know I there's bands I, I don't like because I don't think they have tunes yeah. and the bands but Psychedelic Furs really do I mean Sister Europe even though really early stuff and Pretty and Pink and all those kinds of things but very very much in that sort of goth kind of thing and we were due to open for them actually not in the Bataclan but in the it wasn't in the Bataclan. I was in the Bataclan, but it was in the other venue. It was in a similar size, sort of a town and countryside yeah. venue in Paris. And we toured with them. We'd gone on really well in Germany, really well with them. They were doing the state. And we'd had preview. We were scarred from previous French gigs where we thought we were really played our socks off. And no, we were just like, we could tell. It was just like, blah, reaction. And I said, guys, we're going to do something really different. So I used to wear really loud, colourful shirts on stage. And I would talk a lot to the audience I said I'm just going to wear really dark clothes on stage I'm not going to say anything and we're not going to play all of our our most poppy things we chose like the first first few songs we chose were like like two b-sides and a kind of like a song that wasn't even on an album and we played those first three songs and they, but they were really very guitar heavy moody tunes and like I didn't talk to the audience at all and they loved us. They, I could tell the audience, actually, this French audience, really liked it. And then we played Arc Light Deborah and like Every Woman, which is how we ended. Yeah, yeah. And we lost them. <laughs> we totally lost them. It was funny. It was like, they, there's a particular thing. I think it was an aesthetic. There's an aesthetic that French rock and roll fans are very particular about. They want their bands to look like an idea of what a rock band is and we just didn't yeah it's funny isn't it it's funny in america then it was um wasn't it east west the like was atlantic 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 yeah, yeah yeah we only toured america once right towards the end on our second album oh, we did we did do tour, we did tour canada funnily enough with because spirit of the west invited us which is an incredible experience yeah. Uh, in a Winnebago it was like totally like seven of us sleeping with all of our equipment in one mobile home meant for it's like two like very intimate couples but we got over to like you know I'm we got to myself and Tim went over and uh, in a very glamorous sort of weekend we flew to to New York and we played in the Atlantic boardroom and we uh, we played in Chennai, uh I think the night before Jeff Buckley was playing there and then we we were flown back and we were playing uh, the band and, uh, you know, we were all playing at the Loch Lomond. Um, there was a festival there and uh, we were getting in at 11 in the morning and we were supposed to be on stage at three in the afternoon. And the roads got to, were totally clogged from the airport from like Prestwick. And eventually it was before mobile phones, but our driver had walkie talkies or shortwave radio and he was communicating with the venue. And we realized we we're getting later and later. So they drove us to the far side of the lake 
away from the traffic and they had a powerboat waiting for us and they powerboated us across the lock as I put on stage wear and I just walked off the jetty and the jetty was led to the stage and literally Matt our guitar tech just put the guitar on me and I just walked out on like literally off the powerboat onto the stage and it was my birthday and so like the whole crowd 40,000 people sang me happy birthday so that was a really that little those kinds of things sometimes happened yeah little moments of glamour yeah yeah the second album, and there were about, I think, God, there were three or four singles off that second album as well, Nick. Johnson. And, yeah. Um, what do you remember about the second album, Nick? Well, I think, I mean, the first thing is my father died ju- just as we were finishing the first album. And I think that all of that, uh, you know, died very suddenly. And I think all of that probably in the, you know, then you're sort of touring the first album yeah. and everything. So it's sort of, and you because you're not living in Dublin, you sort of, all that sort of a little bit diffuse, like you're... Yes response so I think in the writing your father as you said earlier was a young man when he he was he was 59 yeah and um, so I think Johnson was much more uh, well first of all it's I am John's son like that's why I would call it that but um, I think the writing I'm actually I'm very proud of the writing on it I think there's things that came in absolutely from that time probably into the writing yeah what I remember about the recording very specifically was we were put with a producer, Steve Osborne, who I still work with sometimes. And he was the first time a producer did sort of what sort of got us and we got them. Yeah. Like we we suddenly understood what a producer was supposed to do. So Steve was kind of fantastically good. So that record to me is a much more cohesive record as a sound So often, Nick, with this series of podcasts, I'll pick out a record and say, let's talk about Twist. But the guest is sitting there going, it's the second record, it's the better record, Paul. It's hard to say what's better or worse, but it's more of a record, the second one, in that it's a very concentrated, it's, you know, it's 18 months of songwriting. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, 18 years of songwriting. And it's... I think there's a lot of much more interesting production. I think we're better players. Uh, Robert had left the band at this time, so we ended up not replacing him. Um, so that was a whole sort of trauma that had happened yeah, as yeah. well. But so we ended up working with a, a session drummer, really brilliant session drummer. So the the grooves on the record were much more, and you know he was really really yeah. attuned to recording. And Steve had recorded like with the Happy Mondays and like with James and like sort and like Paul Oakenfold, like in remixed U2 records. So rhythms and uh, like he was he really was good at that. But but also he's a trombone player. Like he's a, he's a melodicist as well. I think we were much, much more focused. We had we felt we had a bunch of songs that were strong. At one point we came back, we thought we'd finished the record and the record company said we think we're not sure if there's a single on this. And they sent me away. And in three weeks, I wrote Drunkard Logic and World Exploding Touch, which are still probably the two tunes I play most yeah. off the record. And I just wrote those in three weeks. So Under pressure. Yeah, it was weird. It was under pressure, but I was more in, I was in the zone more writing. I think I was getting yeah. a lot out of the writing as well, as well as, you know, putting it in. But I it was... It was getting stuff out of my system sort of thing. So I think that's the one that I can't... Yeah, more... That record is probably more... Um, it, means, it means more to you? I, I don't know if... It, it probably does mean more to me, is the truth. 
I've, you know, I find myself returning to it. I think mm. it's, I think it's more, it's a more underrated record than Twist, though. I mean, it's, Twist has got a bunch of songs yeah. that are, like, I'm really proud of all the songs in Twist, and a bunch of them are ones that people will remember, yeah. especially in Ireland more. But you know, even the songs that aren't singles, like I think Boyle, is the you know I'm incredibly proud of that tune. I think Horsewater Wind is like and Providence those two those so those three songs none of which are singles yeah. I think are I mean you know they're all songs that are, are probably songs that I still play and I'm still really proud of and you know Drunkard Logic was the biggest single we ever had actually World Exploding Touch was the last single we did but um, I still play that all the time and show myself even like I, I it's funny I started playing that again I hadn't played it for years and I started sort of playing it live because somebody asked for it a gig yeah. and it's funny, the bones of the songs and, and Alien, the song Alien, I kind of feel, um, yeah, that song, I should play that more because that's kind of what I always feel like. Come here, you've got to tell me about the song cycle. I know you've started a Kickstarter campaign to finish the, the documentary. Hmm. I was following yourself and Sean, Sean Miller on social media a couple of dates he did from Dublin over to Glastonbury. Will you tell me about it? Yeah, so, so I mean, I think ever since Fat Lady Sings split, I kind of, I moved back to Ireland and I had, I like, I sort of, in my head I thought, okay, I did actually give away my guitars. I didn't do anything. I didn't have a guitar for 18 months and I didn't go to a gig for 18 months. But, so I did think, okay, I'm not going to be dependent on music but but then I sort of it's it's very you know it's a very addictive thing making music and I think I always I'm going to do it so I've I've made two solo albums under my own name and then two more solo albums in, in under the name Alien Envoy, Envoy. Um, but you know very much writing to my own fans to fund them paying all the musicians and you know, really very much doing it myself. And there's a funny old thing that happens, you know, like I'm very proud of those records and they like, I got very nice reviews. I mean, they're much, much, I don't have, because I put them out on my own little mom and pop shop label. I don't have like big videos and campaigns around them, but you know, like win prizes for them. And, you know, and I'm very proud of them as collections of songs. And there's a funny thing where if, like, I don't feel like I'm a folk musician. But all musicians, after a certain point, if you're if you at my level of obscurity, you sort of turn into a folk musician because you're too old not to pay people, but you're too poor to pay people. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Everybody else, like I can't be asking somebody to be like a man in his forties who's got a, a wife and three kids and a mortgage to to do me a favor and play on come on tour yeah, with yeah. me. So I start to really miss the collective thing of playing a gig because you know, I if I play a gig and I pay everybody like I basically it's costing me you know two two grand a gig to play for my for my so I came up with a thing called the Unelectables which was like a little it was a joke band in a way which was it was a a super group of people who had failed to become rock stars in the 1990s but the band really was based around the nucleus myself and my friend Sean Miller uh, Dr Miller and Sean and I had known each other since London. We were both London bands, really. Yeah. That was the thing. And we few tours. Yeah. Right? And we were both really good friends. And we both really admired each other's songwriting. 
but there was a kind of a weird thing about like when Harry met Sally like you don't want to be sleeping with your best friend like so we'd never played music together like but you know I'd sing along from the audience at his gigs like and all that stuff but the unelectables we put it together as a way of us both getting to have a rock band that we didn't have to pay anybody because it was everybody's band you know, Paul from Intuanua was playing drums and Leston, the Wild Oscar, was playing bass and Dara was playing keyboards, you know, he was, like, he was a solo artist and arranged. So it was kind of like, it was a thing and it, there were rules the unelectables, like no acoustic guitars, no slow songs. It couldn't interfere with money making in any way for any of the rest of us, which made it almost impossible for any of us to rehearse. And then it had to be fun. And so we won the best dressed band at the electric picnic uh, a reward I'm most proud of probably <laughs> but because myself and Sean it was half his songs and half my songs so for half the gig I was this lead guitar player which I'd never been a lead I didn't own a pedal but I bought a pedal in this time and then Sean sort of was the same for me you know so we'd always loved each other's songs we knew each other's songs but it was the first time we played and then you know the unelectables literally the last gig we played we played the Moncrief show Valentine's Day 2020 and we played a gig that night and then we never played a gig again because of COVID and lockdown and everything. But during lockdown, myself and Sean got together because he was house sitting in West Clare and the house came with the dog and he had some health challenges and he was finding it really hard to exercise this dog. So he made me come down and bring my guitar and he said, we'll play some songs, but mainly I just need you to help me walk the dog. So we wrote four songs in West Clare and we recorded them and then we thought these are really good we should put these out and we put them out as dogs so we did that and then i said i've got this idea i've always been really interested in environmental stuff and i am not a saint and i always have to always preface this because people see me driving a car sometimes and people see me or they call me and i'm in the bath and i'm not vegan and all of that but i really do think about that stuff a lot and then in 2007 I actually volunteered pro bono to work for the Green Party in that election cycle and I'd written their party political broadcast and just because I mean I think it's the issue of our time and yeah. you know we're, we're, we, it's, we, we all need to be in this but I was really struck by a thing that I'd read about uh, how Coldplay had cancelled a world tour because they couldn't justify the carbon footprint and I love festivals and I thought there has to be a way of doing this and I played a song in, down in the three arena as part of the Fela classical thing. It was just one song and it was a rainy night and I knew the traffic was going to be terrible. So I just cycled to the gig with my guitar and like my stage wear and my pedals and it was fine. And I thought you could sort of do this. So anyway, I came up with this idea and I said to Sean, I said, let's see if we can get booked to play Glastonbury. And I reckon I can get across Wales I reckon I can do that in five days. Get a cycle from ferry. If the, if the, off the ferry. I could, a five day cycle. I get to Glastonbury, and I reckon I can get everything on my bike, and let's play gigs on the way. So he was totally on for it, and then two months before we were due to set off, he finally got the checkup because again COVID ran ran all his waiting lists, and you know he in fact discovered like the thing he thought it was like you know maybe muscular or whatever it was actually he needed three stents put in so he kind of had you know he's really lucky and healthy and he's fine now but it meant that he wasn't fit to do the cycling yeah. so I said okay that's cool so you take public transport and I'll cycle and we'll meet each night along the way so we got the ferry to uh, Pembroke and then 
I cycled and Sean took the bus to Carmara. Then we played a gig and then we went to Swansea. We played a gig. They went to Cardiff. We played a gig. And then we went to Bristol and I nearly died trying to get up the hill. It was a very hot day and it was the end of the longest cycle. And the hills into Bristol's are vicious. But we got there. We played a gig. And then we got to Glastonbury and we arrived in Glastonbury and on my 60th birthday I played Glastonbury on the Friday the 24th of June 2022 with Sean as dogs and it was a big thing for me as well because I had outlived my father officially that at that birthday and now I have to say if my father had turned 60 literally the last place you would have found him would have been at Glastonbury but it's a funny old thing when you um, outlive, outlive your father. Yeah. So existentially, it, so I wanted to do it as a sustainability experiment yeah. in the way of these things. There's sort of mission creep as well, because I think it's also about human sustainability. And and as artists, like here we are, myself and Sean, deeply obscure, like with a folk memory of playing to huge crowds. But, you know, essentially you were playing to, in, to tiny audiences in, in little venues across yeah. Wales. But I think it's a worthwhile thing still to do. So... How you grow old as an artist is really interesting and how you keep yourself, how you keep it alive for yourself is uh, is is interesting. So it's anyway, I, and I brought it the last minute. I realized that, uh, you know, I've been making movies for the last quite a few years and trying to make movies, which is for every movie you make, you are trying to make 10 more. And I just thought I'm going to bring a, ca- a cameraman on my other bike and I'll just this I can afford to do. Yeah. So I brought a cameraman and he filmed our journey and then I've done some filming subsequently. So the song cycle, we did it again this year. So we've done the whole thing. We were covered by the BBC this year uh, for it. But I'm also turning that project and that journey into a documentary at the moment. So uh, So I'm going to play the audio from your little promo here, Nick. In June 2022, I decided to cycle to the Glastonbury Festival, carrying all my gear on my bike and playing shows along the way. I just wanted to prove that it was possible to play live without driving. You feel sorry for me, don't you? No. (laughs) I was accompanied by my great friend and fellow musician, Sean Miller, who tracked my progress on public transport, and by Keen, who filmed our adventures. My father died at the age of 59. On my own 60th birthday, I was playing at Glastonbury. So while the initial inspiration for this project was definitely around the environment, I do think that this film may be about other forms of sustainability too. How do we preserve the magical communal experience of live music? How can each one of us adapt and grow as artists and human beings to our own lives? And how can we all manage to somehow just keep pedalling? Nick, there's your little Kickstarter promo and it's starting I think in the next few weeks isn't it yeah I've been really lucky because after I split the fat lady sings so during the fat lady sings I saw how powerful 
having a relationship with your with your fans and with people who just supported your music who weren't in the industry could be. And then after The Fat Lady Sings, all of the albums I did, I wrote to people and I said, I'm doing this with you, Give me, send me the money in advance. I remember between trapezes, I... The first time I'd ever heard of this notion of, of crowdfunding well, I, was, was that record. Well, I mean, I, I, Google had me in to talk to them because yeah. it was before the internet was in. I mean, most of the people was like 300 people sending me checks or yeah. postal orders in the post. And I said, if you send me the postal order or check in the next three weeks, in two months, I'll send you a record and your name will be credited on as a sponsor. But I've never done it for film before. And, and you know, part of the reason is purely practical. So I've, I've made... Several short films, the third short film I made was Down to the Last Ten for an Oscar. And then I got to make my first feature film, very low budget uh, film, but a very low budget film where everybody's working for like yeah. low money and uh, is, is 350,000. It's like that's a tiny budget. But all the other film ideas I have are, they're so, each one of them, it's a miracle any film gets made because you have to get so many people and so many much funding on board to get to make it. So the Kickstarter thing, I just thought, OK, I've, I've filmed this journey on little, little cameras like but your phone has got you can shoot in 4K on your phone and little I've got little DJI kind of gimbal cameras and things that which, you know, I bought them for like 300 quid. You can film and your film it will look really good in the cinema. I just thought I'm going to follow the logic of this and we're going to do this in a punk rock way. So it's if I think if I get 25,000 euro which is obviously a big chunk of money for me, but in the grand scheme of things for filmmaking nothing. is nothing. Yeah. But that's, I think that's what I need to edit and, you know, the mix sound yeah. and also pay for, because some of the, we'll, there'll be there'll be archive footage and things like yeah. that I'll need to pay for. So the Kickstarter is, uh, yeah, it's called The Song Cycle. It's launching on October 1st and... I'd be thrilled for anybody to give me, you can go, you can give me five euro or you can give me 2,500 euro. Those are the, the band of rewards goes between those two things. Nick, to finish up, would you mind introducing Arclight for us? Maybe tell me something about what that song means to you. Well, I'm always thrilled to introduce Arclight, I have to say. Uh, I know people are sometimes rude about the song that everybody knows them for because they get very tired of playing it. I never get tired of playing it. It's incredible to have a thing that exists outside of yourself that people who never met you are know about you. And it's 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 a privilege that I think, I don't think people realise that so much. Arclight is, it was inspired by a line I read in a John le Carre novel, which was Smiley's People. And it's the end of the Carla trilogy. And Smiley, who's this cuckolded, beaten down, kind of default leader of a completely demoralized British Secret Service, who's been had been absolutely had the heart ripped out of it. It's fictional, but it's clearly based on the Philby McLean thing. And somehow against the run of play through his own hard work and intuition he's finally managed to snare the ultimate prize which is the defection of the leader of the Russian secret service if he makes it from East Berlin to West Berlin and all of the Smiley and his little gang of ramshackle spies are in the shadows in the west and there's a bridge a footbridge across the river from the east and a little man 
appears and they've no photograph of Carla but they know it must be him with the case and he's going to walk across the bridge but at any moment if the word comes through from Moscow the snipers on the East German side can take him out and they're watching him walk across the bridge this prize if he makes it to the other side and the bridge is lit up with arc lights and I'd never seen the word arc light before in a book and that snagged with me and songs tend to grow out from a word or a phrase for me or they grow out of a musical phrase sometimes it's just two chords how they juxtapose or sometimes it's just one little verbal phrase and then like weirdly like like a petri dish or like a fungus or a a crete and they start to grow so arc light started with that one word in the john le carre book nick it's been an absolute pleasure thanks a million thank you so much Shine like an arc light Sing like a bird might sing When he was higher than heaven Higher than every other thing Some kind of arc light Sparks in the street I know that you've no answers All I need is for you to shine Shine like an arc light Like I want you to shine Oh, I know that you've no body And I know that you're not mine
And that, of course, was Arclight by The Fat Lady Sings. If you go to paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast, you'll find the episode notes, further information and a load of old press clippings about The Fat Lady Sings. You'll also find a link to Nick's Kickstarter for the Song Cycle documentary. And don't forget that The Fat Lady Sings are reforming to play Whelan's on the 15th of November. Now, episode 32 features an album that went multi-platinum in Ireland. 85% of those albums were sold on cassette tape. The album featured four singles that are embedded into the consciousness of a whole generation of Irish people. The band are still going strong and they're as popular today as they were when their debut album came out in the summer of 1990. Here's a short preview. You'd arrive into a small town, the promoter would come out with a hall waiting and it was always, are ye the band? You, you would hear that. One time we were playing somewhere like Bun Clody or somewhere like that and the place would be stuffed. And I remember a young lad coming up to me afterwards and he says, if you don't mind me asking, he says, what the hell are you doing playing here? To them it was like, are we that important, you know? People would still come up to me and say, I remember the time that you came to Loch and played in the Temperance Hall. We couldn't believe it that the Stunning were coming. And I think that actually has a lot to do with the band's longevity. To hear knows when, great Irish albums revisited. Episode 32, Paradise in the Picture House by the Stunning. Fire in your eyes, in your head, fire in your touch. There you go, a short preview of episode 32. The theme music is called Irish Rhapsody Redux. It's by Mark Healy, and it's his reworking of a recording of the New Light Symphony Orchestra's version of Victor Herbert's Irish Rhapsody. Until the next one, goodbye.